remember in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 10, the saints reign and Satan's last stand. If you would, please stand as we read the Word of God together. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his imager, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you that you are speaking to us, even in these verses that seem so strange of we reigning with Christ in a thousand-year millennial reign, and, and we have Satan being loose for a time, and who knows why, and uh, Lord, we'll find those things out as we read your word today, but uh, Father, please speak to us. You have jewels, you have treasures in here for each one of us, little nuggets that will help our lives. Open our spiritual eyes and ears to the truth of your word. Help us to hear from you today. We need you, God. We need you. We need to hear from our God and we need you to touch our hearts, and we ask that you do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as you know, the theme of Revelation continues. It's the same each week. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment, and Jesus is coming to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's really, really, really going to happen. It's easy to just glide through these words every week, but this is actually going to happen. Now, we did talk about last time the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We talked about some controversies. Some people believe in amillennialism. There'll be no millennial reign, and I don't see how that's going to happen. And we talked about post-millennialism and, 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 and that sort of thing. We believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Guess what we can look forward to in that reign? What will there be no more of? I have a list for you. You could make your own list up. There's not going to be any more corrupt politicians. And I would say, yes, 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 thank you. Yes. <laughs> I didn't expect that. But anyway, governments, no more corrupt governments exploiting their people. No more corrupt false religious systems in the world. Oh, no. They will know who the true God is. No more corrupt pastors fleecing the flock. There will be no more of that. And then this list, no more crime, pollution, wars, rumors of wars, hurricanes, tornadoes, lightning strikes, earthquakes, droughts, lawlessness. No more Marxist ideologies being forced on a people. No more indoctrination to an anti-God worldview. And guess what? Hear this and hear it loud and clear. No more fake news. Yes, with no more. Yes, and no more fake news reporters. They're not even reporters. They're commentators. So, and no more Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, iPhone messages, all done, even so come Lord Jesus. 
That's all I can say. Now, why the millennial reign of Christ? Why the millennial reign of Christ? Mark Hitchcock says in his book, The End, the following three R's. They all begin with R. Number one, to reward the faithful. What you do here will be rewarded in the millennial kingdom. It's very important what you do here. Number two, redeem the creation. The whole world's going to be one big giant mess, and it has to go back to an Eden-like environment, and God will miraculously do that. There will be a new heaven and a brand new earth going into eternity, but this one will be remade, and it'll be like Eden. And thirdly is to realize the covenants. God made specific covenantal promises to the nation of Israel that can only be fulfilled in a millennial reign. I don't know how all millennialists get around this. They can only be fulfilled. There are three that I think are most significant. Number one is the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, three things are promised. There is a land promise, there is a people promise, and there is a blessing promise. And we get this from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says the following. To Abraham, God speaks, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house. Get away from your family. They're a bad influence on you. Get away from the worshiping of the moon gods. That's exactly what he's talking about there. And then go to a land that I will show you. It's all desert. It's all desert. And I bet Abraham, I bet Sarah's going, you know, what are you talking about, Abraham? I will make you a great nation, a great people, and I will bless you. That is the land people blessing promise. Then there's the Davidic covenant that will be fulfilled in a millennial reign. Someone from David's lineage will reign in, in, in Jerusalem. That one will be Messiah. Under Messiah, I believe David will be reigning personally in the Israel branch of the, of the government in the millennial reign. Then there's the new covenant. That's the blessings covenant. The blessings covenant that the Jewish people are going to have their hard hearts turned into soft hearts. And we are grafted into the nation of Israel. We experience these blessings also as our hearts are turned from stone into flesh as we believe and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Another huge giant benefit of the millennium is that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Now that's also good news. One angel with the authority of God does the binding. One angel with the authority of God. Not a battalion of angels. Not an archangel, not another cherubim, a higher ranking, or a seraphim. One angel with the exousia of God. Remember that word last week? The exousia, the administrative authority of God. He laid hold, in 20 verse 2 it says this, This angel laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who was the devil, and Satan, and bound him. I want you to focus on two words. I didn't put this in the notes last week, but I want to emphasize it this week. The devil, the word is diabolos, and it'll come up on the overhead, diabolos, accuser, slanderer, divider. Hear this. Now, you've heard those definitions before. This is also who the devil is. He is one that comes in between two, between two people, between us and God. He is a divider personified, a divider. And then Satan is the word satanus, satanus, adversary, opposer of God and everything that God values. Satan wants to do two things to you, to discourage you and defeat you and divide you, to keep you out of action. His strategies, 
His methodia, his schemes, which we see in Ephesians 6.11, have been very effective against humanity. And you probably have experienced some of this in your own life. Division. Adam, right out of the chute, falls for the trap. And you know what he does when he takes of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve offers him? He immediately goes into blame, and there's division between Adam and God and Adam and, Adam and Eve. Division. The devil has done his thing. He says this, Then the man said, said, The woman whom you gave to me, blaming God, she gave me, blaming her of the tree, and I ate. Adam was divided from God and from Eve, and there's been division going on in our world ever since. Ever since that time. Ever since that time. Remember, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle that we are into. The enemy's tactics are very well known. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, we read in Ephesians 6.12, but against kingdoms and principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. It is a spiritual battle. It is ongoing, and your enemy is an expert at deceiving you. Never forget that. You know what his schemes are, so you have a heads up and a leg up on the rest of the people. Now, the devil's main tool, and this will come up, his main tools are this, deception and discouragement. Now, if you had your little handout with you that I suggested, you would read the following. Now, this is written by somebody. I don't know who the author, author is, but he says this, discouragement is the biggest tool that our enemy uses to defeat you. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I will bet in this room today, the vast majority of people are dealing with some sort of discouragement in their lives. A mountaintop, it comes on you all the time. He uses this to defeat us. That makes us feel that we are unworthy, hopeless, and it steals the joy of our hearts. Isn't that the truth? If it is not knocked out, Knocked down, it will unfold, and it will bring its friends with them. Discouragement does not travel alone, you know. It will bring doubt, depression, loneliness, and anger. And how many people are in that position right now that they've experienced this? Discouragement comes with the following. I just lifted, listed a few. If you were doing this talk, you could list your own things. But disappointments with people in life. That happens all the time. Somebody let me down. When I'm tired and I'm worn out from life, I can get discouraged. When I have an inordinate fear of people in that what they think of me, I'm always striving to look good in, the, in people's eyes. What do they think of me? And when there's a loss of confidence and I feel beaten down, then I can get discouraged. And you need to know that you can overcome this the following ways. Number one, and you know this, immediately when you have any problem, you cry out to God. Spend time with him, meditate on his word, and allow his word to encourage you instead of discourage you. Remember, dis, taking away from, taking courage away from you. Allow God to in, input courage into you. Psalm 19.14 says this, let the words of my mouth, and I think this is very important when you're discouraged. Let the words of my mouth speak truth to my situation. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. That's the murmuring sound of my heart over and over. 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer, my discourager, overcomer. And then think about this. Cry out to God. Secondly, take a rest. Reorganize your thinking. Take some time with God. Get your life in order. Get everything in order. Jesus did this all the time. He, he went to the masses. He was, he was overwhelmed. He got alone with his father. Take some time to rest. And then think about God as much as you can. Focus on God, not your problem. You take captive every thought. Renew your mind. Focus on God. And finally, and I think this is the most difficult, but if you're going to complete this circle and make this work, this is essential. Return to your life. Remember, Satan wants you sidelined. He wants you out of action. And we want to get back into the flow of life, not be isolated, not be angry, not be just miserable for the rest of my life. Do not drop out. The, the devil, the divider, wants you out of action. We had several examples in Scripture. You know, David was discouraged. Elijah was discouraged. John the Baptist was discouraged. The cousin of Jesus, he's in prison waiting to get his head lopped off, and he's discouraged, and he's going, hey, if you're the Messiah... You're supposed to set the captives free. Why am I in prison? And he sends word to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, John, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. You know that I'm the Messiah. And John was then encouraged by Jesus' words. And it helped with his discouragement. Help with his discouragement. It's good to know that you can overcome Satan's strategies. And it's also good to know that Satan will be chained in the future. Chained in the future and out of action for a thousand years. But then he's let out. And everyone in Christendom wonders why. And I think we've discussed this. There's two reasons. Number one, I think, is to show the depravity of man. It is not the devil made me do it. The devil cannot make you do anything. He can influence you. He can tempt you. But he cannot make you do anything. Flip Wilson is wrong. The devil did not make me do it. We have enough crud inside ourselves. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. From within, the heart of man, the heart of us is this. Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murder, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and pride. All these things come from within and make a man unclean. So that's one reason. One, we're just pitiful on our own. But the second thing is this. I think there's one last stand of the devil given to, to deceive the nations, to divide the nations. One last all-out effort. Now, this week, we're going to talk about the saints' reign and Satan's last stand. We'll pick it up in verse 4. And I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God. Now, you see thrones, you see judgment, and you see ruling in those verses. You see two groups here that are mentioned, those on the throne and then those beheaded. Those on the throne, we don't know quite who they are. But these who are beheaded, you know these are tribulation saints. Beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So let's pick this up in development. There's two groups that are mentioned here. 
that will reign, that will be described. Group number one, I believe, are the church-age saints and the Old Testament saints. The church-age saints are those who believed post-Pentecost in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to Messiah coming, and their belief was credited to them. Their faith was credited to them, as it says in Abraham. So that's what I think these two groups are. These groups are the group number one. Group number two is unmistakable. These are the martyred tribulation saints. These are easily, easy to identify. Why? Because they're beheaded for their witness. How did these tribulation saints overcome Satan? How do people overcome tribulation today? You know that today, we've said this many times, there are more people being martyred in our world than at any time in the history of humanity up to this time. All those from the past up to now do not measure up to the number that are being killed today for their faith in Jesus Christ. We are insulated here. We just don't hear about it. How did they overcome the tribulation saints? How do these people overcome in third world countries? The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They said, we will die for you, Jesus These people in the tribulation period did not accept the mark of the beast. They listened to the third angel. Do you remember the third angel in Revelation 14 who flies over the earth? And he's yelling out with a loud voice, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't take, if you take the mark, the wrath of God will be poured out on you. You'll be eternally separated from God. So God gives a warning all over the place. Now, who... Who are going to be the group that reign in the tribulation period? We have an overhead here. It's going to be the church saints, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. They will all have reigning authority in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. So this is important to know up to this point. So back to our notes. The first resurrection, verse 5 and 6. What in the world is the first resurrection? What is the second resurrection? What is the second death? Those things we hope to answer in the next two verses. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Pause right there. The rest of the dead did not reign with Christ. They They are still in torment for a thousand years waiting the great white throne revelation. Just take a pause. Excuse me. Great white throne judgment. Thank you. Until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now that's going to be confusing. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priest of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So indelibly put this in your brain. The first resurrection are those who will reign with Christ a thousand years in the millennial reign. That's the first thing. This is for believers only. Believers only. Those who take part in the first resurrection, they have three things to to, to think about, to look forward to. Number one, they'll be blessed. Number two, there'll be no second death. And number three, they'll be priests of God. We start out here. Those who take part in the first resurrection are blessed. Makarios is the word. Fully satisfied. Let's allow Zadiades to expand on that definition. He says this in his Greek word study. God makes fully satisfied makarios. 
not because of favorable circumstances, but because he indwells the believer through Christ. That is an important concept. It's not about your circumstances that you are blessed. See, the world looks at you as being blessed as you've got lots of money. Everything's going smooth for you. Oh no, you're blessed no matter what situation you are in. Markarios is the one who is in the world, yet independent of the world, not controlled by the world or its situation, its influence on you. His or her satisfaction comes from God, not from favorable circumstances. That is important to know, especially if you are one of these folks that is facing martyrdom, you can still be blessed even in that situation because your God is with you all the way to the end. We can be blessed, fully satisfied, because Jesus is with us. You know, Jesus overcame. He overcame. He gives us the power to overcome. In John 16, we have these words of Jesus. In the world, he gives us a promise, and he's telling you the truth. You will have tribulation. Now, everybody, you agree with that statement? You think that, remember, tribulation is thalispus is the Greek word. It means crushing, squeezing, discomfort in your life, stinking things are going to happen to you. You will have this. That is a promise to you. Most people want to ignore that. Most people want to tell you, oh, it's your best life now. You come into church, you come into Christianity, it's your best life now. Folks, you have someone to go through the mess with, but this is not our best life. This would be a huge disappointment if this was our best life now. Huge. Think about Jesus. He left the grandeur of heaven. In this world you will have tribulation. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He left something that we can't even conceptualize of. He is the creator of all things. By him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In Colossians it says, he holds everything together. And he became a man like us, a human, a person. And he experienced the crud of life. He left everything. Jesus blessed us when he became human, when he became one of us, a human. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, talk about something called the kenosis, or the self-emptying of Jesus' use of his divine rights. Watch what he says here. Let your attitude be that which is in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature or the form of God, the morphe of God, the DNA of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. No reput- taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, and coming in the likeness of men. God becoming a man is unheard of, but he did it for us. This, 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 this becoming a man, setting aside his divine privileges, is called the kenosis in theological terms. It's the self-emptying, the volitional setting aside of his divine privileges and rights. But he never set aside his divinity. Jesus is always, always God. He's the God-man. He's the God-man. Now, I have a picture here of the Trinity. Now, this concept is not easy. But these ellipticals will help you. God is a combination of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is complex unity. All three, three persons, one God, thinking in concert, the Father 
has never had a contrary thought from the Holy Spirit or the Son, and so on. All of them working in total, complete harmony and unity. And get this, forever. Forever. There's not one slip-up. Complex unity. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that Jesus overcame. He gives us the power to overcome, but I want you to think about Jesus' life. When he came here, he experienced what we're experiencing. It was not a bowl of cherries for him. He was rejected by his countrymen in the Jewish nation in John 1.11. He was rejected by his hometown and his own relatives in Mark 6.4. And it even crescendoed from that that his own family thought he was crazy, insane, out of his mind in Mark 3.21. He was rejected by the religious establishment of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that group, but also the government of the day, Pilate and Herod and Rome. Jesus was rejected by everyone when he died on the cross. His friends de deserted him. And remember, it was only John and a few of the women that were at the foot of the cross. All the other followers that were following him in mass left him, were disappointed with him. And finally, we realize in Matthew 27, 46, that even when he is diving, uh, dying on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is feeling the rejection of even his father at that time as all the sins of the world are being poured out on Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like. But you know what? In John 16, 33 says, I have overcome the world. Overcomers, folks, are blessed. Now, let me ask you a question. Who are overcomers? Now, there are people who believe that if you, you read Scripture, you see the word overcomer, that believers, all believers are overcomers. I think it's a little bit more narrow than that. I think it's more narrow than that. And I would even say not all believers are overcomers. It is, not my, it is my belief that not all Christians will automatically reign in the millennial reign of Christ. Those who reign with Christ, I believe, are those who are rewarded at the Bema Seat judgment. We've gone through this judgment many times in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Remember, you're going to be judged for your works after salvation. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. It's no works involved whatsoever. But after we're saved, we're expected to work for our Lord. And it, will your works be wood, hay, or stubble be burned up, or gold, silver, precious stone, and, and endure? Then if they endure, you receive a reward. If they are burned up, you lose your reward. You lose your reward. Important concept, you'll suffer loss. I believe that only overcomers will reign with Christ. That's Revelation 2.26. Hear the verse. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power, exousia, administrative authority over the nations, over the nations. That's reigning over the nations. Only the faithful. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 11 through 13 says this. This is a faithful saying that if we died with him, we'll also live with him. We now let me explain this. When Jesus died on the cross in Romans chapter six, verse six, we also died with him. We were crucified with him. That is the picture. When we come into the family of God, we died to our old self. Our new nature is what's supposed to be predominant now. 
So this is a faithful, if we, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, then we will reign with him. Enduring means going through all the stuff of life, being an overcomer of the stuff of life. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's a tragic thing. If you say you don't believe in Jesus anymore, you're out, you're lost. But he also makes this statement. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You know what that tells me? There's times when I'm going to be just floundering in my faith, wondering if this whole thing is real. And yet I'm still in the family of God, and he, God, my God is faithful, faithful, faithful to get me through this thing. John Wolvert has this to say about the first resurrection. The first resurrection is not an event, but an order of the resurrection. They are the first in contrast to those who are raised last after the millennium, when the wicked dead are raised and judged. Now look at it. In our text it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. These are not part of the first resurrection. The next sentence starts out, this is the first resurrection, or states this is the first resurrection. That is referring to those folks in verse 4. Not those people that were raised a thousand years later. They are not part of the first resurrection. So there's an order to the resurrection. An order to the resurrection. The first one resurrected is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. The second is the raptured saints, the church age believers. That's next on the agenda. That's what we can't wait for. I mean, hear the trumpet, get ready to go. Hip, hip, hooray, we're out of here. The third are the two witnesses in the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 11. The fourth will be the Old Testament saints in Daniel chapter 12 too. And the fifth will be the tribulation saints. We see that in our text today, Revelation 24. So, thinking about this resurrection order, Andy Woods in his work on this compares this to the Tagma, the order of a Roman general marching his troops through, this, through Rome victorious. And he's, he has an order here. So if you have on the screen the order. Uh, the general. Jesus is the general. He's the first in order of the line. He would be like the general leading the procession. The officers would be the raptured saints. The soldiers would be the Old Testament and tribulation saints. And the captives those that were not raised until after the thousand years are the unsaved of all the ages that we read in Revelation 20, verse 5. These are the ones that will appear at the great white throne judgment. The books will be opened. They will be found wanting. Their, book, their name will not be found in the book of life. And they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Tragedy of tragedies. And guess what? This is true and this is real. True and this is real. Now, there will be no second death for those in Christ. Remember, the second death is going into the lake of fire. We die one time physically, but we never die spiritually. Absent from the body, present from the Lord. The second resurrection is for the lost in Revelation 20.13. And I would say we are blessed to be part of the first resurrection. Their resurrected bodies, the lost resurrected bodies, are prepared for the lake of fire forever. They are eternal and prepared for the lake of fire. Isn't that something? We are prepared for an eternity with God, but yet they will exist forever and ever and ever in torment 
with a body prepared to endure that. We are the ones that are blessed to be part of the first resurrection. There's also a blessing that we get to be priest of God in that text. What is a priest? A priest does the religious aspects of the kingdom. We're going to be kings reigning with our Lord, but we'll also be doing the religious aspects of the kingdom. What is the biggest thing that a priest has? Biggest advantage to being a priest? You can boldly approach the throne of grace. Doesn't it say in Hebrews chapter 4 with our petitions? It says we can, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and it's written such a way that we can approach without being accused or condemned for coming to God. We are in heaven as priests. We will have ultimate intimacy with him. We can turn to him at any time and speak with our God. Hearing us any time. That is a loving, caring God. That is a privilege that we have. And again, don't forget, your extent of your reign, of your experience in the millennial reign, is determined by what you do now. What you do now is exceedingly important. I can't say that enough. So we know that the saints will reign, but we also know this. Satan will have one last stand. Now, I can say one thing about Satan. He is persistent. He does not give up. And just remember that in your life. He's waiting for a key moment to pounce on you. Verse 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Stop right there. A lot of people believe that that statement is an indication that the earth is flat. Okay? The earth is not flat, folks. There's a flat earth bunch of folks that believe that the earth is flat. It is not flat. All this is saying is that it's deceiving people from the four corners of the earth, the whole world. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. They went up from the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and it looks like Satan's going to be victorious. And lo and behold, fire came down from God out of heaven, devoured them, and finally, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. And notice who's there after a thousand years. The beast and the false prophet are there. And what happens to these? Are they having a party there? I'm going to, have my, I'm going to go with my friends and have a party because that's what... No! <laughs> they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever and ever and ever, anios, forever, okay? It is not a consuming fire. So, with that stated, Satan's sentence expires, and he immediately reverts to his old ways, deception. He has learned nothing in his imprisonment of a thousand years. Remember, he is who he is. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He is a discourager. He is a deceiver. And he is a divider. And he, it, it, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 tells us how he deceives us. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. That word transforms is metaschismatizo. And that means he can change his outer appearance, but he can't change who he is on the inside. He is who he is. A murderer a liar, 
a deceiver, a discourager, a divider. That's who he is. And who does he deceive? The nations of the world, the entire world. This, this being comes to the world disguised, looking like a kitty cat. Meow. But who is he in reality? The roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5.8. And he deceives the entire world, the four corners of the earth, and they're deceived as the sand of the sea. Isn't that astounding? Perfect world, perfect environment, Jesus ruling. Everything's great and wonderful, and people still are going to follow his deception. What is the problem? I think the problem is this. They're looking like they're following Jesus outwardly, but their hearts have not really been changed. Jesus knows this. These are the ones that are rebellious and want their own way. And think about this. All Satan has to do is dangle a little carrot in front of them. Doesn't even have to be something significant because they're already prone to wanting to turn away from Jesus and follow him. The slightest temptation and they descend into all-out rebellion. Satan and his armies are allowed, let me say this again, allowed, allowed to surround the capital city, Jerusalem. He thinks he's going to win, doesn't he? He's got the numbers. Now we got him outnumbered. Now we're going to win. Folks, let me say this to you loud and, loud and clear. One with God is stronger than any army or any foe. And how quickly does God end this rebellion? He ends this rebellion post-haste. Fire comes down from heaven and devours. <clears throat> Remember Pac-Man? <laughs> and Satan is done. Devours. And all those, guys, all, those, all those rebellers are devoured. And he joins the beast and the false prophet who have already been there for a thousand years. In the final abode, all who rebel against God will be there forever. Tormented day and night Forever and ever. And let me say this loud and clear. This need not be. Heaven, hell, excuse me, hell was not created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. God has given humans an exit plan. An exit plan. Those who refuse God's rescue, his son, his son, his only begotten son, whoever spurns the son will be separated from God forever. This is hell. This is the wrath of God being poured out on rebellious humans. Closing thoughts. Now, there's some good things to know here. Good things to know. Good thing number one, the whole thing of a rebellious world, this rebellious world, is winding down. Now, we think it's crescendoing. We're uncomfortable here. We are experiencing discomfort here because things are changing. But this is a, this is a picture of of how it's supposed to be at the end, and this thing is coming to an end. Satan, we need to know this, Satan will have a last stand, and he's going to look powerful, but it will fizzle. We know that Satan will instigate a rebellion, a rebellion in heaven, and he will be dealt with, and this is good news. And it's also good to know that evil will never, ever, ever exist after that last rebellion. And real love must deal with evil. Those who believe and receive the gift of salvation will reign with Christ. 
And I want you to hear this loud and clear. If you're sleeping, wake up. This is a wake-up time. Wake-up time, please. You are being prepared now for your rulership in heaven. All the stuff you're going through now, everything you're going through here is not for nothing. Please hear that. All the stuff is not for nothing. It's not meaningless. Though we may think so, we may not understand it. And I can guarantee we won't understand it here. We may not understand all the crud, but God is using our life experiences to change us. That is the whole purpose of your journey here, to be changed, to be more like Jesus. This we must comprehend. If you're going to have any peace on this journey, you have to comprehend this. You are here to be changed, not to have everything great and wonderful. The believer's life is all about change and transformation. Let me say that again. The believer's life is all about change and transformation. Christ did not die for us to be the same. For us to say, I believe in you, Jesus, and I'm just going to go my way, do whatever I want. That is not why he died. He died for us to change, to follow him. What did he say? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They don't just stay the same. Stay the same. I've said the word, so I'm going to be... No, no. You're, you're called to change, to be different. This is what the believer's life is, all about change and transformation. Not to skirt around the edges. Not to be a half-in, half-out Christian. Jesus died that we would be followers of him. Again, I can't say that strongly enough. To really be a follower of Jesus, you must have your mind transformed. Your thinking has to be different. And that transformed is not metaschismatical, just a covering like Satan does. It's metamorpho, change from the inside out, a change of condition, an internal change, a changed heart. Allow Zadiades to expand on this. He says this, an invisible process in Christians which takes place or begins to take place already during their life in this age. You're being transformed now. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says it perfectly. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, mercy talking to believers, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices we present ourselves to God, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's our spiritual, if you have a King James, it's your spiritual act of worship. Our service of, to God is our worship to God. And then he says these words, do not be conformed to this world. Does that sound like a suggestion? Or does that sound like a command? Do not go into the road, Johnny. Is that a suggestion or a command? That's a command. That's an imperative in the Greek. Do not be conformed to this world. Do, in the Phillips translation, it says this. Do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Do not allow the world to conform you into its likeness. Be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Folks, it is a journey of transformation. If you're the same today that you were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, hey, you aren't on the journey. Get on board. You might be saved, but you are not going to be reigning in the kingdom. 
Those who do the will of God, those who are overcomers will reign. The glorified, fully transformed you will reign with Christ. And I want you to hear this. Please hear this. I think that we cannot imagine what we have to look forward to. What God has prepared for us is going to be astounding. It's going to be wonderful, unimaginable adventures forever. Things we cannot comprehend or imagine here. And I want to suggest this also. Please hear this. Hold loosely to hear. How many people, Christians included, holding on to every, just hold grasping on to everything here. Don't cling to this world, folks. It is passing. You can see it. It's devolving right before our eyes. Those who cling will be disappointed. If you're a Christian and you're clinging to here, you're going to be disappointed, distressed, discouraged continually. You will be happy. I don't want to say happy, more joyful here if you engage God in being transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is not where I belong. Are you experiencing that now? Feeling more and more, I don't belong here. This world is not the world that I know. Hold loosely to here. Clingers are not transformed. Clingers are not thinking with a renewed mind. Now I want to close with this story about a clinger in his futility. This has to do with the Aladdin's lamp and that whole thing. Watch this. The story is told of the man who, while walking on the beach, found washed up on the sand a used magic lamp. When the genie answered his rub, he told him that the lamp contained but one remaining wish. The man pondered for a moment and then requested a copy of the stock page from the local newspaper Dated exactly one year later. This guy's got one request. And this clinger, this clinger wants to know how he can make money in the future. In a puff of smoke, the genie was gone. And in his place was the financial news. Gleefully, gleefully, the man sat up to pursue his trophy. He could invest with certainty, knowing the winners one year in advance. As the paper fell into his lap, it turned over to the obituary column found on the reverse of the page and the name on the top of the listing caught his attention. It was his one year later. Clingers hear this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The Bible terms transform people, aliens and strangers. Doesn't it say that in Hebrews? We're just passing through. We look forward to a better place. Live life here more encouraged than discouraged because of where you're going. It's easy to get discouraged here. It really is. If you have your eyes on your life and this stuff here and you have nothing else to look forward to, it is abominably difficult here. Satan will have his last stand. The saints will reign with transformed minds. We will one day be home. And let me say that. That is something to look forward to. That is encouraging to me. I hope it is to you. And I would encourage you, be an overcomer. This is your time. There's no other time. This is our one shot at this. We get one shot at life. 
be an overcomer, live this out with a transformed mind, and be all out for our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, may we not be counted with the clingers of life, looking at the temporal and not the eternal. But Lord, help us to not be so heavenly minded that we're useless here. Help us to live out our lives with the joy of the Lord that you have given us in spite of our circumstances. That's your miracle, God. That is not easy to do. But those aren't just simply words. You have given us the methodology in order to be able to live this out with joy and purpose and be encouraged. And that is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I'm viewing my life here as an alien and stranger, looking at everything here through the eyes of heaven. I know that what I am experiencing here has purpose and meaning and value, and God will use it for his honor and glory here and in the future. Help me to conceptualize this. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your spirit that is with us through this whole thing called earth, that we have the comforter, the paracolito that comes alongside of us, that he does indeed encourage us. He is our encourager. And may we walk more and more encouraged and less and less discouraged with the things of life. Thank you for this study today. Please speak to our hearts truth. In Jesus' name, amen.